Good evening. Welcome to the final in the 2015 University of Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series. I'm Larry Hurtado, uh, Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology, and a member of the Gifford uh, Lectureship Committee. It's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Professor Jeremy Waldron, University Professor at the New York University School of Law. As he uh, concludes tonight, uh, the Gifford Lecture Series on the theme, One Another's Equals, the basis of human equality. This evening, Professor Waldron will deliver the final lecture entitled, Hard and Heartbreaking Cases, the Profoundly Disabled as Our Human Equals. Now, as with the preceding, uh, preceding lectures, this one is being recorded in sound and video and will be available in due course on the university's Gifford Lecture site. One small note regarding the handout. Uh, disregard the curious annotations in the upper right-hand corner. That is an artifact of some previous stage of communication um, and um, is not relevant. I now have the pleasure of inviting Professor Waldron to give tonight's final lecture. Will you join me in welcoming him to the podium? <clears throat> The principal gave me the scarf the other evening, so I've determined to wear it in case he has observers here to see whether I'm suitably grateful. I am most grateful uh, to the university and to the Gifford Committee for this opportunity, and I hope it's been worthwhile. You're faithful and um, attendance. Thank you. In the past five lectures, we have striven to see in the light of difference and inequality some basis for the human worth, the human dignity that constitutes us all as one another's equals. I think at least I have shown that that task is by no means straightforward and I hope nevertheless we've been able to make some progress and cast some illumination into this difficult, challenging but most important area. There is still one great challenge we have to face, and that's the one referred to in the title of this evening's talk. We have to come to terms not only with the variation in mental and moral character that human beings exhibit every day in the ordinary course of their lives, but we also have to come to terms with the more extreme differences that qualify some people as tragically and profoundly disabled, disabled perhaps in respect of the very capabilities on which our account has made everything turn. So we're looking at human beings who are severely cognitively impaired, individuals who not only lack language and self-consciousness but are almost entirely unresponsive to their environment and to other people, and we're interested in these cases, some of which are congenital, some of which involve um, terrible accident or disease, some of which involve a decline into this condition through old age and dementia. What are we to say about these cases? What are we to say about human equality as it applies to these human beings, people of the species human who seem to lack the distinctive characteristics that we say that I have been saying are the basis of human equality? 
Some philosophers, as we will see, take this as an opportunity to convince us to abandon the notion of any distinctive rational or moral capability as the host of our human dignity or our human worth. They seize on these facts, these cases, opportunistically as a reason for denying that there's anything special about human life as such and uh, as an opportunity for denying that there's any important distinction between human life and the life of other higher animals. In this final lecture, I am going to take an approach opposite, opposite to that. I would like to explore ways of thinking about these aspects of the human condition that allow us to maintain the integrity of human equality even for these hard and heartbreaking cases. Now, you don't need me to tell you that disability, the word disability, is a broad and problematic term, and we need, all of us need to be very careful in its use. It's very important that the concerns of this lecture be identified sensitively, and that we give a thoughtful account of what distinguishes the range of cases that I'm going to focus on this evening from the broader range of disabilities as that term is ordinarily used. So I'm going to say over and over again, profound disability. And what I'll mean by that is focusing on a relatively narrow range of cases in which cases which involve radical failure of one or more of the capacities that clustered together add up to the basis of human equality. If we focus on what we have reason to regard as a key range property, then for these cases, we're dealing with a condition of a human being which falls radically short of the capability that would otherwise have dignity conferring significance. The condition they are in may be understood affirmatively as some condition which blocks or damages or supersedes the key range property, or it may be understood as just the absence of the key range property, though in either case we're never really dealing with simple absence, for there are always the organic structural rudiments and remnants of the range property present, and that will be quite important for our argument. So somebody who can't speak often has a larynx and a tongue, and their brain is organized as though it were for a person who could speak, except the brain doesn't work for the speech centers. But there is infrastructure, physical infrastructure, that entitles us to say this being had or has a potential for speak, speech that has heartbreakingly not been realized in this case. This is going to be important for what we say. The capabilities we are considering then as the basis of equality don't exist independently of our embodiment. They have, as I say, infrastructure. The capacity for language, for example, depends on morphological and structural features like tongue, larynx, and the functioning of certain areas of the brain. These areas and their, these features are not simply absent in the case of profound disability. They are sort of there but not functioning or damaged for one reason or another. And I'm going to focus on this profound disability, distinguishing the cases, this narrow range of cases, from other cases where we would use the term to describe the, um, the predicament or the forms of life of people who are deaf or suffer from dwarfism or suffer from Down syndrome, people who, in fact, are capable of leading human lives 
in a much more familiar sense. Um, in a way, because there are no bright lines here, we'll want to work uh, with complementary strategies to deal with those two senses of disability. The issue of profound disability is increasingly recognized as important in political philosophy. Citing Eva Kitay's wonderful book, Love's Labor, Essays on Women, Equality, and Dependency, that's Kitay, K-I-T-T-A-Y, Citing that book, one philosopher has observed that every theory of justice must now be tested with respect to the issues of providing care for the profoundly disabled and of compensating those who care for them. I will talk about carers towards the end of today's lecture, but our task today is more limited than that, but if anything more important, it involves reconciling the basis of human equality, which underpins everything we want to say about justice and dependency and care, Reconciling the basis of human equality with human situations in which we have no alternative but to acknowledge the absence of the properties on which humanity and human dignity is supposed to turn. Now, it may help, I've already said something, to indicate in advance what the bottom line of this lecture will be, So, just so you know where we're heading. My claim will be that those whom we must call profoundly disabled are human persons too, comprehended by the basic equality that we have talked about, endowed with human dignity, distinguished as we all are by our nature from non-human animals, entitled as far as possible, as far as makes sense, to the benefit of the basic equality, the fundamental human equality, which is the topic of these lectures. Their relation to the basis of human equality is not straightforward, but just because something is complicated doesn't mean to say it's tentative or ambiguous. Yeah? I want to take up the challenge of giving a complicated account of something that's very, very uh, important. I believe that we will find that sustained thought about these cases actually works not to patch over an embarrassing hole in the lectures, but to generate a more complex and sophisticated account of equality itself. Now, the approach I'm going to take is in conscious opposition to the approach taken by a very respected philosopher at Princeton, an Australian, the author of Animal Liberation, Peter Singer. Um, very great man. I said earlier that the cases I'm talking about tonight are treated by some ethicists as a ground for denying the thesis that humans are equal on a basis that distinguishes them from all of the non-human animals we know, and that's more or less Peter's position. Considering what he calls the claim that self-awareness or autonomy or some other similar characteristic can serve to distinguish human from non-human animals, Peter Singer invites us, and this is, I think, on the sheet there, invites us to recall that there are intellectually disabled humans who have less claim to be regarded as self-aware or autonomous than many non-human animals. If we use these characteristics to place a gulf between humans and other animals, we place these less able humans on the other side of the gulf. And if the gulf is taken to mark a difference in moral status, then these humans would have the moral status of animals rather than humans. But, says Singer, this would have consequences few of us would be willing to 
accept. In a rather brutal passage that I have not put on the sheet, he writes, none of us would want to use profoundly intellectually disabled humans in painful experiments or to fatten them to satisfy some gourmet's interests in tasting a new kind of meat, which is what we do with animals. Yeah? He mitigates the brutality, however, by insisting that the aim of his argument, and I think I do have this on the sheet, is the aim of his argument is to elevate the status of animals rather than to lower the status of any humans. Peter says, I would like our conviction that it would be wrong to treat intellectually disabled humans in this way. I would like that conviction to be transferred to non-human animals at similar levels of self-awareness and with similar capacities for suffering. And I take him at his word on that, on that uh, point. But the idea is that if we follow through on our intuition that profoundly disabled people nevertheless have human status, the result is that we have no way or no basis for excluding certain non-human animals from that same status. We'd have to relabel it. It wouldn't be human status anymore, but it would be a status founded on the same range property. If we are to be consistent, we must either include the animals or exclude what Singer calls their profoundly disabled human equivalents. Yeah? Their profoundly disabled human equivalents. That's a challenge, isn't it? Um, and Singer is right to insist that we deal consistently and non-evasively with this issue and that we should extend the benefit of whatever scheme of classification and theory that we are using to comprehend cases of human disability to all other sentient entities as well. And he is right, I think, to criticize moral philosophers for having glossed over this issue or brushed it aside or saying that they'll deal with it another day. Last week, last Thursday, I introduced the idea of a range property. So that we don't have to say that humans have the same cognitive abilities or the same moral abilities, but just that we can define a range and all humans are within that range. So it's natural to wonder whether the appropriate response to the cases of profound disability, to keep faith with our intuitions that these humans are humans too, that the appropriate response would be to widen the relevant range, right? Taking in not just Gretna Green, but Carlisle, to use my, my um, Scottish example, perhaps Dublin as well. Natural inclination is to deal with this issue by taking advantage of the flexibility of the idea of a range property, manipulating it in a way that is responsive to our strong intuition that the lives of the profoundly disabled are human lives, that their worth is human worth, and that in fundamental terms they are the equals of any of us. Just as we use the idea of a range property to comprehend large ranges of human difference among people who would not normally be regarded as disabled, so we can use it to encompass an even wider range, comprehending what I have called profound disabilities as well. I certainly believe that that's the appropriate approach to use for non-profound disabilities. Yeah? The, the disabilities of people who make lives for themselves with their lack of hearing or some other uh, physical impediments and in just a different way from the way we make lives for themselves. But they are still cognitive lives, human lives, moral lives, affectionate lives, and so on. So couldn't we even draw the range wider than that to take in the profoundly disabled as well? Maybe a drastic expansion, but if this is what our intuitions command, that's what our theory must do. 
True, as Singer says, this may have the, co the consequence of including many beings who would not normally be characterized as humans, whose moral and mental capacities do fall within this drastically expanded range. A well-functioning chimpanzee may have mental abilities equal or superior to those of a profoundly disabled human being, but that's the price of our determination to accommodate all humans, and that's what Peter Singer is making of this situation. If we want to accommodate all humans, as he says, including infants, mental defectives, psychopaths, Hitler, Stalin, and the rest, then we're going to have to cast the net very wide, and the net will include the dolphins and the chimpanzees as well. Now, I've distinguished throughout these lectures between a sort of a, a modest negative thesis about human equality and a more aggressive one. One says there are no discontinuities in the human range. The other says, no, there, there's something special about the human range. Clearly, this is the Singer approaches a challenge to the something special version of equality. I believe that, I mean, Peter says it's not a challenge to the continuous sense of equality. But I believe that's unstable. I believe that, in fact, uh, people who take the Singer approach would eventually, sotto voce, quietly, implicitly, reintroduce some discontinuity. Only the discontinuity would have, as it were, the, the well-functioning chimpanzees and the poorly functioning humans on one side and the regularly functioning humans on the other side. Singer and others will not own up to that, but it's something that we should have at the back of our minds, and maybe they are right. Can I add just one other little footnote here? There are some people who approach the question of rights and social justice using ideas about reciprocity. It's a way we mutually come to terms with each other. I can make life difficult for you, you can make life difficult for me, we form a sort of social contract, maybe some sort of Hobbesian bargain to mitigate the threats that we pose to each other. And I've avoided that in these lectures, and I think for good reason, but certainly that would be an additional line of thought that made it very difficult to accommodate profoundly disabled people whose ability to pose a threat to the rest of us is not, is not at all clear, even on the Hobbesian point. That's about all I'll say about that reciprocity point. What do we do to confront this challenge? Well, as you know, I have left this issue to the end, because now it's the second Thursday, not because I think it's less important than what I said in lectures one through five, but because I don't think we would have been in a position to say anything sensible about it until we had the rest of the account in place. We certainly needed the account of the range property in order to define I, what I think is an important question. Are we going to deal with this by expanding the notion of a range property, or are we going to deal with this by defining a different relation of some individuals to the human range property? And we couldn't have even posed that question last Tuesday before we had the notion of range property at our disposal, not to mention the idea of a range capacity or the idea of a range narrative um, or the idea of sparkle that went with that. So um, I wanted to have that in place. John Rawls, who's one of the people who is accused of infinitely postponing consideration of this issue, insisted, I think quite rightly, that you had to get the basis of ordinary human equality into place first and then deal with scattered cases of profound disability. You shouldn't use the second as part of the first step of the process. He just never got to address the second step. That's the trouble with Rawls.
Now, <clears throat> I left this until after yesterday's lecture, after the lecture about God, human equality and our relation to God. Actually, I'm not as sure that we needed that in place before we could address the disability stuff. Some people say, well, obviously, that's, that's one way God loves the profoundly disabled people too. They too are touched by his love as much as any of us. If his love consecrates each of us as one another's equals, then that would work in this case as well. So it's possible to take that line of thought in the great encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life, Pope John Paul raised the question of whether we should even be considering ranged properties like rationality or language or moral ability or personal autonomy. Should we be considering any of that while we know that there are some human beings whose lives cannot possibly be characterized in that manner? And in um, section 19, of that encyclical, the Pope maintained, the former Pope maintained that it is clear on the basis of this that there is no place in the world for anyone like the unborn or the dying or the disabled uh, who is a weak element in the social structure or for anyone who appears completely at the mercy of others and can only communicate through silent language of a profound sharing of affection. So some suggestion has been made that we would have to go towards a religious account that wouldn't depend on consecrating any features of the human being, but would just depend on the relationality of God's touch or God's love on each person. Except you can't help noticing that elsewhere in the encyclical when nobody is looking, Pope John Paul insists that humans are distinguished from other animals by their reason, and that God has endowed us with reason and understanding and knowledge of him and his love in order to distinguish us from the other animals, and that is part of the glory of the image of God. And so, so he feels entitled to use those intuitive religious ideas, ideas that do seem to refer to some attributes of the human being, some essence of the human being, in which case his, his complaints about secular liberals who use such attributes can hardly be justified. I think the, 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 the reasons that we have for focusing so strongly on moral capacities, reasoning capacities, language capacities, and autonomy capacities cannot be pushed aside in this way. We have to take those intuitions too and relate the profoundly disabled, the situation of the profoundly disabled to that. We can't just say that this is a reason for abandoning any emphasis on capacities, whether those capacities have a religious flavor or not. So I teased you a little by postponing the discussion of profound disability until after yesterday's discussion of religious themes. I have no doubt that religious people, church folk, certainly do bring and can bring a special variety of care and a special sense of shared obligation to care for those whom God has called to live a life under these conditions of profound disability. But by and large, the account I do want to give this evening and the complexities that I do want to introduce this evening will not generally be religious complexities. I want to see how far we can do this in secular terms. Not that I oppose religious grounds, you understand. The answer I want to give is one that I'm going to back into, go backwards into using a sort of an analogy, or the answers that I'm going to give, because there'll be several of them, 
The answers that I want to suggest will require us to use a sort of analogy involving not the case of the heartbreakingly impaired, but the case of very small children, babies, infants. Actually, it's not really an analogy. Singer thinks it's just another instance of the same difficulty. You remember Singer says, all these cases, infants, Hitler, the profoundly disabled, and, and so on, right? And infants, certainly if you just stare at the infant and ask what situation is the infant in now, he or she cannot think a great deal, has some sort of mental life. He or she cannot reason morally. He or she can barely communicate with others, although anybody who met my two-year-old will know that the communication blossoms at an alarmingly quick rate, and so does the moral sense, uh, to tell you the truth. But babies, too, considered simply as babies, have profound cognitive, mental, and moral limitations. Newborn babies are incapable of any of the various modes of thought or practical reason that I have identified as the basis of human equality. Newborns, two-year-olds, even five-year-olds, teenagers, forget about it. You know, these are radically different from uh, the likes of us. But whatever model we have of basic equality is going to have to accommodate these cases as well. So we may get clues how to think about profound disability for human persons from thinking about the, the temporary disability of children and babies. Once again, you can imagine somebody suggesting simply that we expand the range property. So we have not just Larry Hurtado, but we have way over in the Gretna Green position some uh, one-year-old child, yeah? but then Peter Singh is standing by to take advantage of that, that move pretty damn quick. If you're going to expand it to include the newborn babies, then you have to expand it to include the chimpanzees and the dolphins as well. <clears throat> so focusing on the babies, a first point that we might make is this. It's probably a mistake to think in static terms about babies. Yeah? Because the thing about babies is that they grow and develop at an alarming rate. Um, I've been talking for many of these lectures simply about human beings identified as individual entities with their current capacities, but the key thing about babies and infants is that they are growing and changing, they are individuals existing at points of time, but they are not just individuals existing at points of time. The points of time are moving, the babies are growing in size and ability, their brains are structuring themselves, they are quickly acquiring a range of skills. They are early stages of whole lives lived over a period of some 80 years or so. We have all, all of us, been squalling babies at one stage or another of our lives. Yeah? And I have insisted several times now in these lectures that any account of human equality must come to terms with the fact that human lives are lived along a trajectory at various stages of which infancy, childhood, mature adulthood, senescence, at various stages of which we seem to present ourselves as different kinds of human. This is true of every single human life. Every human life is a developmental trajectory, a changing pattern, but intelligibly changing, and changing in a very familiar way over uh, development from baby to infant to young child to teenager to young adult to full adulthood to middle age to senescence, and so on. 
And what we value, I think, when we value human beings, what we accord worth and dignity, when we accord worth and dignity to human beings, are those whole human lives extended in time. We value whole human lives, not just slices of them. And if we are to use the rather crude image of the range property as a sort of circle with an array of points inside the circle, then we should think of that circle as a kind of a slice of something vaguely sausage-shaped. Yeah? And so a person's position in the range property consists not just of a point, but of a line between successive circles. If I was adept at PowerPoint, I'd be drawing this up on the screen for you, but you can visualize it in your mind's eye. A set of circles, and the range of infant capacities is one thing, the range of toddler capacities is another, the range of teenage capacities is a third, the range of adult capacities is a fourth, and even working within the ordinary human range, you would be tracing each person as a line between points on those successive circles or slices. Yeah? So whether you think of it as like a salami sausage or a snake that you sliced up, or a set of slices that have been assembled with threads holding them together, that's, it seems to me, to be the way to think about human, human lives. None of this is incompatible with the idea of a range property. It just complicates the range property by adding a fourth dimension of time or a third dimension in our representations. I believe that dignity is to be accorded to a whole life developing, flourishing, declining, rather than to privileged time slices of a life. And the equality claim is made as between the trajectories of all humans who are one another's equals over their whole lives. Now, there's a um, rowdy section of the audience in row three on, the, on my left there who have been peppering me with questions, uh, extremely illuminating and helpful questions. And, Somebody took advantage of the lull before we began today to say, well, what view does this lead you to take about fetuses? What view does this lead you to take about stages of human life before birth? And I want to say I had been hoping that nobody would ask that question. <laughs> but um, two things to say. One is I don't think we should have our picture of what human beings essentially are held hostage to abortion politics. And secondly, abortion politics is primarily about what the law should do or not do so far as interfering with the reproductive life of a woman is concerned. And that may be compatible with a variety of views about the metaphysics of the growth of human individuals. My understanding, I'm a man, not a woman, my understanding that every woman who carries a child to term is aware that she is carrying the early stages of a human life and paying attention to that in uh, what she does and how she acts and what she drinks and what she eats and how she exercises. And so it makes a certain amount of sense to say that this form of human life uh, has a certain, uh, is the beginning of some trajectory there, particularly because humans spend less time in the womb than other mammals because of the size of the brain, which means that some of what would otherwise be fetal development has to happen in the cradle rather than the women. There's a whole lot of technical stuff there. But basically, I want to ev evade, evade this issue. I want to say that there is a trajectory of human life. It seems obvious to me it extends into intrauterine uh, life as well as... Um, but I say this without prejudice to what the law's attitude should be to the rights uh, of 
the woman who is carrying the child. Anyway, what I'm insisting here is that it is very important to factor in the element of time and to offer a dynamic rather than a static approach to human life and human equality. And this, I think, resonates a little bit with what I insisted on last Tuesday, that we give an account of the relevant range properties, not just simply in terms of IQ scores or anything like that, but in terms of narratives that, as it were, map onto the trajectory of a person's life in religious, in religious uh, conceptions of human equality. What distinguishes humans is a certain sort of narrative that's available and can be cashed out in different ways, which applies to people over the whole course of their life, from baptism uh, through to their final confrontation with glory. A sense of time also liberates us from the idea that the exercise of the key capacities occupies us, even us fortunate ones, uniformly throughout the lives. Not only must we give an account of infancy, but even in our adult lives, none of us is continually engaged in moral agency or personal autonomy. We're sometimes off-duty on these matters. Yeah? These are capabilities that humans exercise sometimes and not others, and their moral important takes, importance takes this into account Sometimes we are sleeping. Sometimes we are daydreaming. Some of us have been in comas. All of this is important. And there are finally the facts of human aging and human decline and end-of-life issues. The person with profound dementia towards the end of life where our understanding of their condition is associated with an, an awareness of the life they lived when they had in active exercise the qualities on which human equality is based. Plus, this is true of chimpanzees and dolphins as well. They too have lives lived over a trajectory. And if we were making the Singer comparisons, we should be making the comparison of whole lives, not of human infants with adult chimpanzees and so on. It's, it seems to me to be a complete failure in his account not to, not to realize that. The other mammals that on Singer's account we compare disabled humans to, they too have life cycles. Their capacities too are to be considered in a four-dimensional series, and that probably means that we're making some sort of fallacy if we compare, say, a human newborn with an adult chimpanzee. The relevant comparison for any ethical purpose at this level is to compare a human life with a chimpanzee life, or if we are interested in human life slices, a human newborn with a chimpanzee newborn, and so on. Now, once we have in mind this trajectory of human life, we can, once we have in mind the salami-like series of human or animal time slices, we may complicate that picture a little further as well, for then we may say that each stage in this series is shadowed by a variety of ways in which things may go wrong. We are brittle, fragile creatures. Things may go wrong, ways in which the organism may be harmed or disabled or fail to develop. Humans are subject to certain vicissitudes of illness, disability, accident, and then dementia. For humans emphatically, and this is my point, these diseases and disabilities and contingencies are part of the human condition. They're not just the condition of a species that happens to look like our own. Other species, again, have their own equivalents. Our vicissitudes, our fragility, make us a being of a certain sort. You know, we are not angels. We are embodied beings and embodied through processes that can go well or can go badly. As Hobbes pointed out, 
for all the brutality of his account, he said, we are fragile, we are brittle, and the brittleness makes us vulnerable not only to each other but to various forms of illness and disability as well. All of this, I think, gives us some background context for reflecting on profound disability because reflecting on this brittleness in the context of any given example of a person who is profoundly disabled, there is an idea that occurs to us that might have been me. I too belong to a species of which this is an available vicissitude. That might have been me. This is a vicissitude of the human species, and in entertaining this possibility, I am not imagining that I could have belonged to a different species or that I could have been a different animal. I'm saying my animal life was vulnerable in this way too. It's just the vulnerability came to realization over here and it didn't come to realization uh, there. The structure and organic consistency of my capacities, these ones, flesh, blood, bone, tongue, neuron, could have atrophied or damaged or undeveloped in these ways. It's part of the human condition that we understand that we were all, in some sense, vulnerable in these ways, and that vulnerability has been realized, like all vulnerabilities in some cases, and not others. So that's one set of thoughts, it seems to me, to be important to bring to the issue of profound disability. An overlapping alternative, a second complementary way of thinking about babies, emphasize issues, emphasizes issues about potential. Suppose we were to say, okay, the capacity for reason, that's a key to human equality. Range property, capacity to reason, that's what makes humans special, makes them like God, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> One might deal with the case of infants then, who can't reason, not by expanding one's notion of reason as a range property to include the mental operations of a one-month-old baby, but rather by defining something like a teleological relation between an infant's capacities, both actual and potential, and the capacities indicated within the ambit of a somewhat narrower range property focused on mature reason. This is what John Locke does in relation to um, the reasoning of children. Do I have this down here? Yes, I do. Do you see down towards the bottom of the page, 4b? There's a little quote from John Locke where he's talking about basic equality. He says, children, I confess, are not born in this full state of equality, though they are born to it. Not born in it, but they are born to it. That's using the preposition as a teleological preposition. They are destined for this reason. They are destined for this reason. Children are not born in this full state of equality, though they are born to it. We are born free as we are born rational. Not that we have actually the exercise of either. Age that brings one brings with it the other two. Now, this is a compressed passage by Locke. Extremely important, it seems to me. Extremely important. And despite its complexity, an account like this, which stresses the destiny of the young child, is much more sensible than the sort of Peter Singer approach which insists on asking, what's the relevant difference in actual capacity between an adult chimpanzee and a human infant? in virtue of which the human has more value and commands more respect than the chimpanzee. Infant chimpanzees are born to the capacities of full chimpanzees. Infant dolphins, the full dolphins, infant humans to full humans. Singer and those who sail with him are enormously uncomfortable 
with this teleology. And I've heard the followers of this line denouncing the relevant idea of a potential here as mere spooky superstition that has to be predicated on religious grounds. Will Kimlicker and his wife Sue Donaldson, writing in Zoopolis, talk about the increasingly contorted intellectual gymnastics that people like me are using. Well, I'm certainly capable of contorted intellectual gymnastics, as you know to your cost. But um, it seems to me that this emphasis on potential is not one of them. It doesn't depend on the religious stuff. In fact, the religious ideas might make it difficult to work with teleological ideas. If God defines our potential, God also controls all the contingencies that lead to the way that potential is realized, whereas here we're trying to define the significance that the potential would have, even in the face of different contingencies of development and, and damage. My point here is that the relevant teleology is, in the first instance, biological. Yeah? The child is born with a tongue and born with a brain that develops in certain ways, and the ways that it develops are unintelligible, except on the assumption that this part of the brain is developing for speech. Yeah? And we can give an evolutionary account of what that functionality amounts to. Birds have hollow wing, hollow bones, which makes it easier to fly. The function of the bone's hollowness, the function of the absence of marrow in the bird's brains is to make flight possible. A bird whose wings are clipped nevertheless has hollow bones, and those hollow bones cannot be understood apart from what was once the potential for flight. Giraffes have long necks to enable them to browse the leaves of very high trees and a giraffe that is crippled and cannot stand up still has a long neck, and the explanation of why it has a long neck in evolutionary terms would be the same. It has a long neck because um, uh, that was the best way to get at the high leaves. Explanations of this sort are non-spooky. They are infrastructural. It is possible in a biological context to give functional explanations of human attributes. And I believe this is true of the attributes we are talking about as well. Peter Singer was once giving a presentation at Columbia Law School, where I used to teach before I was kidnapped and taken to NYU. And um, he was pursuing his normal line about disabled people or children being roughly like well-functioning chimpanzees. And a woman in the audience raised her hand to ask the first question. And Peter said he didn't want to answer a question by her because she'd been following him around forever. I said, well, you're on my turf now. You'll answer the questions that come from the audience. So she said, I have a profoundly disabled daughter. And you can't understand the disability she suffers, except that this is a being made for speech that can't speak. This is a being made for thought that can't think. This is a being made for effective neural control of movement who, cannot, who can barely control motor functions. You can't understand her predicament. You can't understand the situation that she is in, except that in terms of her, of her being, in a sense, wired for speech, for reason, for, for uh, uh, neural control of movement, and so on. You can't understand the predicament unless you understand the potential that has been frustrated in this case. She is not, said the woman, like a well-functioning chimpanzee. And uh, Peter, like the famous character in... Um, in uh, Ring Lardner's book, answered by saying, well, shut up, he explained. And uh, um, 
I think it's an important point. There's nothing spooky about it. There's nothing superstitious about it. There's nothing even theological about it. We can say God created her daughter to speak and the daughter can't speak. We could say that. I don't want to disparage that. But we don't have to introduce God into the picture in order to make sense of this potential. This is a human potential present but effaced and superseded and blocked or damaged uh, in this, this um, person. Not only is it true that these capabilities have functional infrastructure, but also we in fact do treat the capacities, say, of infants and young children in exactly this way. Confronted with a child, two years old, beginning to babble, heading towards speech, we don't say, oh, what an interesting child, just like a chimpanzee. Parents have an obligation to recognize that there is potential here and to play their part in bringing that potential on, which was partly the point of John Locke making the original observation because it was intended to refute the position that parents had inherent authority over their children. They have authority over their children only so far as is necessary to bring their children on to freedom and independence and reason. Yeah? So I think we do take this, this, in all ordinary cases, we take the idea of this potential seriously. And I believe we have to take the idea of the potential seriously in these cases um, as well. So you don't have to engage in any intellectually disreputable contortions to draw attention to the role of potential here. It can be done organically. It can be done um, structurally. And equally, I believe we cannot understand what has happened to the profoundly disabled human person without, again, understanding distinctive human potential and the organic and structural infrastructure of such potential. In this regard, I think there are massive differences between humans, even profoundly disabled humans, and their closest animal relatives. Not to mention there are differences between a profoundly disabled human and a profoundly disabled chimpanzee. Again, we insist on comparing like with like. Not only that, but we must bear in mind that those who are profoundly disabled present themselves as human and are distressed and those who care for them are distressed because they're not functioning as human. And the fact that the properties which are the basis of human equality do not apply to them is a fact belied by their appearance and structure. But it's not just a matter of surface morphology. It's a matter of the organization of the being, which in somehow has gone wrong. Now, the difference between the Lockean approach, slight tension, and the trajectory of the human life approach is that the Lockean approach seems to privilege the telos, yeah? the actual attainment of reason and freedom and equality. Whereas on the uh, trajectory of life, I was saying that the whole thing is to be valued. I think it's possible to hold those two positions in some tension with each other. Because we do certainly think it is important for the properties that define the basis of human equality that we arrive at those capacities gradually. And that our upbringing is partly supposed to orient us towards those capacities. And that's part of the narrative that is to be told about each human individual. Trajectory, teleology, got to have a third T. Tragedy. Right? When we come across a profoundly disabled human being, we no longer put them in circuses and say, how interesting. We say, what a misfortune. 
What a tragedy. We have to be very, very careful with this idea because um, people involved in disability identity movements, disability rights movements, quite rightly protest being analysed through the lens of tragedy or misfortune. Uh, they say, I'm living a deaf life, and a deaf life is a decent human life to live, and I will not have people uh, even sympathetically describing it as a tragedy. And I respect that greatly. It's part of, remember I said we're going to have to do a two-track approach to this. But for the profoundly disabled among us, it seems to me that if the language of tragedy is not appropriate, the language of misfortune is. And here I'm going to quote some work of Martha Nussbaum, who is a um, philosopher and classicist uh, who teaches at the University of Chicago, who's written a wonderful book called Frontiers of Justice, Disability, Nationality, and Species Membership. I disagree with Martha on a few things, but I don't disagree with her on this. She says, the life of a profoundly disabled person is unfortunate in a way that the life of a contented chimpanzee is not unfortunate. You remember, that's the comparison that Peter Singer wanted to make. Martha says that although the Singer analogy between disabled humans and higher animals has something to be said in its favor, still it is terribly misleading if it is supposed to suggest that the profoundly disabled human belongs to a species that has a normal form of life that is her own, that she has fellow species members with similar capacities with whom to form sexual and family relationships, as the chimp does, that she is surrounded by species members with similar abilities with whom she can play and live out her life. Not true. She has her immediate human family, those who love and care for her. Yeah? But for them, the difficulty is that she lives a kind of life that's quite different from hers. And so one needs to think a little bit about the relationship between this member of this species and other members of that species. We can begin to push this in terms of social functionality, although that's treacherous, treacherous territory because um, you have to deal with various forms of malign social functionality on issues of race and so on. But Martha's point is right. The profoundly disabled human is surrounded by humans who lack her impairments. She lacks, she lacks the relative independence that most adult members of her species community have and that animals of other species typically attain. She is very unlike an average chimpanzee. Not that it's a misfortune for her to be surrounded by people whose capacities are different from hers. That is the good fortune of the profoundly respectworthy love that sustains people with profound disabilities. But it won't do to say, oh, they're just like chimpanzees and therefore we can make the Peter Singer uh, maneuver if we want to. I do want to emphasize the issue of um, relationality. Every disabled person who suffers the condition of impairment of the range properties relevant to human equality is related to somebody who has those properties. And in that sense, the profoundly disabled person belongs to the human community. As Nussbaum emphasized, such person is not a member of any other species community in this sense. Moreover, this relatedness partakes of the profound importance of relatedness in ordinary cases. One says, this is my child too. Or one says of a demented um, spouse, this is the love of my life. We talk then of misfortune and tragedy, but it is important to note that whatever tragedy we attribute to the situation is not just described, it is felt, and it may be felt on 
all sides. I'm not emphasizing this relatedness in order to establish some form of virtual representation on behalf of the profoundly disabled. Some philosophers who take the singer line mitigate it somehow by saying, well, we do still have to deal with those who care for such persons, and they can make life bloody difficult for us even if their wards cannot. Um, there's something to do that. We certainly must respect, profoundly respect, those who give care to those who are humanly uh, disabled. And that may be one reason to give the, their interests priority over the similar interests of comparably endowed um, animals. But anyway, here's the position that I've been wanting to head towards. We gave an account of range properties as though that were all we needed to make sense of a basis for human equality. You know, I've tried to complicate it, clusters of range properties, dynamic sequences of range properties, narratives, range narratives, and so on. But we gave an account of all that as though that were all we needed to establish an explication of human equality. I think we need to think about a different sort of relation that a human individual can have to the human range. One is simple membership. You're in the unit circle. You're a point on the circle within the range. A second relation that a person can have is a vulnerability relation to the human range. Because this human range was described not in terms of capacities set in stone, but the capacities that grow and are brittle. The human range and the range properties are shadowed by fragility and by the possibility of conditions in which fragility does become actual damage and impairment. So that's one possibility. It seems to me we can say a person um, partakes of the human range, but partakes in this different way under the auspices of these vicissitudes. Secondly, we can say that a person has a teleological, teleological relation to the human range, that it represents in potential what they might be or what they, those very individuals, might have been. So that's taking the teleological aspect very seriously. And thirdly, we might say we have great compassion for this misfortune or tragedy that this represents, attitudes that I think are inexplicable apart from the presupposition, as I said, that this has happened here to one of us. This has happened to one of us rather than to a member of a species that just happens to resemble us. Now, all of this may be conceded, that this profoundly incapacitated individual is human and does have these complicated relations to the human range, but aren't we still making a mistake in thinking that the same normative conclusions of basic equality can be inferred from these different forms of relation to the human range? We, inferred, we sought to infer normative conclusions from the fact that somebody's, in the ordinary sense, within the human range, they too are to be accorded human dignity. They too are to be accorded rights. They too are to be given the vote and taken seriously in calculations of social policy and social justice. In the case of just being within the ambit of the range property, we give the individual the full benefit of human worth, human dignity, and human equality. Are we compelled to draw the same normative conclusions for the profoundly disabled person as well, related as she is to the human range in these other, more complicated ways? Well, again, my answer, exasperatingly, is complicated. 
We're not compelled to do anything in, in this area, right? We're talking about factual predicates that make sense of human equality rather than factual predicates that reach across the fact-value gap and drag us across. That's what we said when we were talking about Margaret MacDonald and Hannah Arendt way back in the uh, second lecture. There is no property or cluster of properties that compels us to recognize others as our equals, but there are properties and ranges of properties, clusters of properties and narratives of properties that make sense of our recognizing one another as equals. And so the question is, what is the appropriate response or what would be an intelligible response or what response would make sense to this sort of delicate and complicated relation to the human approach? In a way, this is where that sort of constructivist approach is consummated. We're dealing here with a determination, not only to recognize this person as one of us there, but for the grace of God go I. She had in potential the abilities that I am lucky enough or fortunate enough to have flourished with. We should try to share the burden of that misfortune in some strong way. That's maybe more of a determination than something which we infer from the relevant, relevant properties. No doubt there will be some normative implications of basic equality that can't apply. The need for guardianship and intense care will make any possibility of personal autonomy relatively limited. Whereas other normative implications of basic equality are clear and equal, namely equal concern for interests, equal concern for needs, nobody to be pushed aside in the calculus of social policy and the calculus of social needs. And issues of fairness and justice will be important, particularly because of the greater vulnerability and danger of being taken advantage of or sidelined as inconvenient. I think we bend over backwards to give to those who are profoundly disabled as much of the benefit of basic equality, equal worth, and equal dignity as is practicable. Some disability advocates have described this approach as patronizing. Yeah. Okay, we have to define a special relation to the human range to deal with profoundly disabled people. It would be patronizing if it involved brushing aside an alternative account, an alternative account that would be non-patronizing, like simply recognizing such persons as full humans, just simply saying that they have been blessed by God or that they are full humans no matter what. And my worry about that, as I think I've said several times to the rowdies in the third row, uh, we, we can certainly say that, and probably in some circumstances we, we should say that. But there is more to be said, and I've tried to say it this evening. We can begin to try to make intelligible sense of that determination to call such people human and our human equals with human dignity. We can make some sense that goes beyond the mere determination to apply a word, but which uh, maps the normative implications of basic equality onto a complicated relation that such persons have to the properties that they live with. And I believe it's very important that all of this, all the time, in every instance, be complemented by a determination that with some forms of disability it will be possible simply to recognize people who are living lives different from ours, but lives. 
engaging in moral interactions, maybe different from ours, maybe not, but moral interactions, forms of, I'm not going to say mild disability, but in my limited sense, non-profound disability that enable people to take their place in the ordinary range of human attributes. We pursue that two-track model. We apply the first, the first model of uh, non-profound disability as far as we can. And when we find that through misfortune and contingency of human life we, we can't apply it, then we have these other models of trajectory and teleology and tragedy to, to uh, fall back on. <clears throat> so my conclusion is it's all very complicated. And I don't know if that is a satisfactory or unsatisfactory note to end on. One might have thought that the challenge of human equality would have been to find some little nugget of humanity, some highly polished unitary feature, some je ne sais quoi, which we would find like a little talisman within the chest of each person. It would be by virtue of this God-given nugget, this little monad, that we come to be one another's, one another's equals, which would be the reason or the explanation of our equal worth, our equal dignity, based on something simple, because of the thought that things with momentous moral significance must be based on something simple. We have found, I think, in our exploration over these two weeks, nothing so simple. Instead, we've found complexity at every turn. Descriptions, prescriptions, target descriptions, reason descriptions, constructive theories, natural theories, multiple normative dimensions, range properties, capabilities, clusters of capabilities, dynamic narratives of clusters of capabilities, religious theories, non-religious theories, ambiguous religious theories, not just human beings, but human lives, trajectory, teleology, tragedy, and vulnerability. Awful lot of complexity there. Is this what we should have expected? I think it is. We humans are exasperatingly complicated creatures. Our relation, each of us to ourselves, to each other, to God, those relations are complicated, not simple. And we are challengingly different from one another too. And these differences have been credited in a bewildering variety of hierarchical relations of subordination over the ages and in religious, ethical, and philosophical thought. And yet in the midst of all this, the idea of equal worth has shone and sparkled insistently. I think the insistence is compatible with it being an elusive and complicated idea. And I don't think we have to throw up our hands in despair at such complexity. We use the talents that are partly definitive of our dignity and human worth to make sense of these complexities, to explore them, to see what we can make of them, and I hope in these lectures I've at least been able to illustrate that approach and how far it can be taken. So thank you very, very much for your attention. That's the end of this series of lectures. As is our custom, there is no question period uh, after the final lecture, but it is my privilege and responsibility to offer some response and tribute on your behalf. 
In this year's Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series, One Another's Equals, The Basis of Human Equality, Professor Jeremy Waldron has guided us in exploring a most important question. What is the nature and basis of human equality? At the outset, he distinguished this question from what we might call policy questions about how our laws, judicial procedures, and social and economic practices should reflect and promote appropriate equality in the treatment of people in various areas of life. Instead, he urged as the focus in these lectures what he called basic equality, which I take to mean a more foundational concept, what it is that can justify for us those specific efforts at practical equality at policy levels. Another way to characterize basic equality, I suppose, might be to see it as a premise from which we approach the evident differences among people and the various policy questions. Or, yet again, perhaps basic equality as a stance that makes inequalities potentially problematic, that interrogates differences with a deeper concern for universal fairness and moral regard. This is obviously an important subject to probe for at least two reasons. First, there are obvious inequalities, differences among people in our various attributes, physical abilities, mental abilities, communicative abilities, and relational abilities. There are differences in race, ethnicity, color, sex, differences in religion, and other matters. One might even say that in the longer history of the human species, it is these differences that have been more influential in shaping how we have regarded and treated one another. Inequalities, at least in the sense of obvious differences of the kinds I've mentioned, have more often served as bases and explicit justification for sharply differential treatment of people. For example, justifying treating some races or types as slaves, and justifiably so. Or in other ways, as subservient and or not eligible for the same regard as given to those in the circle of the entitled. Professor Waldron readily agreed that basic equality is a relatively recent and still fragile notion. So any intention or disposition toward any form of equality of regard would seem to need a clear and cogent expression of what it is that we mean by basic equality, what it is that justifies it intellectually, and even demands that we see beyond differences and perceived inequalities to something more profound that unites us. Second, in light of this frequent and perhaps pervasive tendency, or to use a religious term, this temptation, to make differences and perceived inequalities the basis for sharply differentiating the treatment of people, precisely in light of that, particularly for subordinating the interests of some groups or classes to the interests of others, we need to articulate a notion of basic equality that is not only intellectually cogent, but also motivating, compelling, something with sufficient moral force that we can be moved, perhaps even shamed, to do the right thing in the parlance of the day. The right thing toward others who are not of our own particular race or nation or sex or religious persuasion. As well as a desire, therefore, for intellectual clarity, Professor Waldron's own deep concern for this morally effective factor was, I think, also obvious in his lectures. There was a quiet, but not unmistakable, but, uh, sorry, but unmistakable passion, as well as an incisive intellect evident in these presentations. 
He was also commendably fair, even generous, I think, in his engagement with other thinkers, even those today with whom he differs, seeking to identify shared concerns and valid points wherever possible, even if in the end he found their proposals inadequate. Speaking personally, I appreciated as well his emphasis on the necessity to include religious faith stances in the discussion, pointing to the potential contributions that faith traditions might be able to bring to the table. He thereby took a stance toward the against the disposition of some who may underestimate this potential or would wish to banish all religious thought from public discourse. To use his expression, a theological anthropology may have something to offer, even to those for whom theology smacks of ignorance and witchcraft. Given the relative newness of serious society-wide efforts, the relative newness of serious society-wide efforts to develop and implement notions of equality, to my knowledge, the imperfect initial efforts dating perhaps only as far back as the 18th century. And given the evident continuing need to justify and promote such notions against the powerful forces of inequality, surely he is correct to urge that all those who want to explore and affirm an outlook of basic equality on whatever basis should be encouraged to join the task. We simply cannot afford to be narrowly sectarian in this endeavor, either of a religious sectarianism or an anti-religious sectarianism. We need what one might call a virtual war cabinet approach that includes all those who can assist in the effort. Professor Waldron's inclusive stance is, to my mind, the obviously correct path to take. I should also note that as public communications, these lectures have been models of clarity and accessibility, even when he was introducing specialized notions and technical terms. Moreover, his sensitivity in addressing the difficult issues, especially evident in today's lecture, is admirable. And likewise, his engagement with the question and answer sessions modeled cordiality, an authentic attempt to understand the points and questions put to him, and particularly noteworthy, an ability to think further along the lines of the lectures in dialogue with the questioners. Well, as a member of the University of Edinburgh Giffords Lecture Committee, I am particularly pleased with ourselves in our selection, <laughs> in our selection of Professor Waldron as this year's lecture and also with the highly informative, thoughtful, and stimulating lectures that he has delivered. Please join me again in expressing our appreciation for them. <laughs>